Missouri legislators are on spring break, and it's fair to say that the 2017 session has been an active one. Representative Holly Rader has been at the forefront of some of the legislature's most controversial and big-ticket bills. The Sykeston Republican joins us to talk about what's next on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And joining us from beautiful Sykeston, Missouri, in our studio. This is not a remote conversation. (laughs) She's actually here. We have as our special guest today... Uh, State Representative Holly Rader. And which district do you represent and what are the boundaries of your district? I have the 148th. It's just south of Cape. So I have uh, parts of Scott County and Mississippi County. Beautiful counties that I'm, I'm sure that you adore yes, quite a bit. Yes. And I was telling her before the show, she's actually the third Sykestonian to be on Politically Speaking. The first was Maida Coleman, a former state senator who's now a member of the Public Service Commission. Right. Bev Randalls, who is a lieutenant governor candidate. But she's the first person to actually represent Sykeston on the show. <laughs> so that's an important distinction I want to make right here. So um, before we get into issues and things that you're sponsoring, I want to know a little bit more about yourself your background, your professional background, and why you got into politics. Got it. So um, I was raised very poor on welfare, um, grew up, and this this will kind of help translate into the the uh, policy that I push. Okay. And so grew up um, in addiction and drug addiction, and um, at 15, I had to quit school to help take care of my family. At 16, I had uh, my first baby. I had to look at my life and say, okay, am I going to go down the same path that I grew up in, or am I going to do something different? And so I went to work. I, um, you know, did odd jobs and and got my um, degree. It took me 17 years. I took my GD. I'm so proud of that. It took me 17 years to get my college degree, but I did because I know education is important. But, um, you know, one of my stepdads was a dealer. My sister was an addict and married a dealer by the time she was 16. And um, my mother struggled with mental illness. And so that that's the that's where my family still is. And that's where I grew up. And um, but yet, <clears throat> you know, I raised my children in a two parent home and um in church multiple times a week. And at 17, my straight-A student daughter, who had been, you know, with me up in her business all the time, got her thumb cut at work and stitched up, went to the emergency room, got a script of lore sets, and she became an addict. And so that took us 13 years down that path. But so that's how I grew up. Uh, We traveled all the time. I was born in Memphis, spent my youngest years in Dallas, but my mama was from Saxton, and so we always went back to Saxton. And, um, you know, since my children have been, since I've started having children, I've I've been in Saxton. I didn't want them going to multiple schools. Sure. But... um, my husband and I started our, our own business 12 years ago, Integrity Communications. I'm a risk taker. He is not. Uh, he had worked for uh, 
cable company for 16 years, and then his job, they did some reorganization. We were going to have to move, and at the time, my mother was sick, and I didn't want to leave her. So um, he went to contracting, cable contracting, cable television contracting, which is what he did the summers while while paying for his college. And so he did that for a year. It took me a year to talk him into us starting our own business. But at the time, I was um, lobbying. I'd been in the industry, cable industry since I was 19. And at the time, I was lobbying for all of the, indus- the, all of the cable companies in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to him, and he had the technical experience. I had the contacts with the cable companies. And um, so I talked to him into us going out on our own contracting. So we have Integrity Communications, and um, now we're in seven to eight states every day. We have just under 50 employees, and um, we have about 125 to 150 subs working um, at any given day. Now, is there, there, is there a particular focus as far as integrity communications what you focus on so what we do is we're the guys that come in and install your cable telephone and internet and so we contract with your companies like uh charter the the larger cable companies mediacom um we have some of the smaller ones semo communications and they'll hire us when they have because it's so seasonal and because if they're running a special they need more workers yeah and so they'll have us come in and do the installations um, for telephone, cable, or internet, and and so at any given time we have teams of guys in all different locations, and they they many of them travel quite a bit, uh, some of them just daily. But um, it's it's been a very a very big blessing to our family. So what prompted you to run for office? I think you ran for the first time in 2012 when the seat that you represent now became open. I don't know if it was due to term limits or it's because Ellen Brandom ran for the state Senate. I think it was the latter. Yes, so Miss Ellen was going to run for state Senate. But while I was in, in Jeff City lobbying on behalf of my business and the cable companies, you know, the thing that I noticed was that we had a heck of a lot of attorneys and um, not many business owners. And um, being a business owner, it was very important to me. I thought, you know, I'm, I might run for this someday. Well, you know, I'm very much a planner, though. And so I, I went and spoke with Joanne Emerson, who was our congresswoman at the time, and very much respect her. And I went to work for her. So I worked for her for three years, learned a lot of great lessons. And um, and then when, at that time, Ellen decided to, to run for the Senate, and so that's when I decided to run for her seat. And that was a situation, since it's a very Republican seat, the Republican primary was the election. You, I think you had a Republican primary to get through, right? You know, and, and in most cases, on the state level, that is correct. The Republican primary was the one to get through. However, I, um, as luck would have it, I had a former mayor, and who was also Bill Emerson's first chief of staff, Josh Bill, yeah. as my primary opponent. But then Remember I that. had Bart Ziegenhorn, whose father was the state rep, Dennis Ziegenhorn, for many years, and um, and then has been county commissioner since his time since he's come back from Jeff City so I ran against Josh Bell in the primary and then Bart Ziegenhorn Dennis Ziegenhorn's son in the general mm-hmm. so it was um it was it was definitely you know to the wall the whole the whole time absolutely so is there a particular I mean we're going to get into the issues that you've been focusing on but when you first got elected were the was there a particular platform that you were emphasizing that if I'm elected, I'm going to push for 
this, this, and this. Yes, ma'am. So um, right to work is very important to me, uh, was very important to me at that time. That's one of the issues that I ran on, um, being raised in poverty, and I represent one of the poorest districts. And that was one of the things that I constantly heard over and over from our economic development folks was, you know, right to work is not a, a deal maker but it's definitely a deal breaker. And, um, you know, we don't even get looked at. And so right to work was very important to me as far as jobs. Our, our factories were closing. Um, Charleston is in my, is in my district, and yeah. I went to school there um, for a little while as well. And, my goodness, I mean, you know, we need something. And um, so that was very important to me. And then um, finding out that, you know, as right when I announced, I also – got custody of my one-year-old grandson mm-hmm. and um he was born with opiates in his system and and my daughter you know like I said had been an addict for 13 years we went through multiple rehabs and, and prison and um at that point I I needed to take him and so it was right after I announced I took my one-year-old grandson but then I also found out that Missouri was the only state that didn't have a prescription drug monitoring program no. <laughs> well and that's still the case Right. And so that was um, very important to me. I contacted uh, Senator Engler at the time, who was running to be Representative Engler, because he had carried it in the Senate. And I said, I really want to help you with this. And um, and he, you know, and I told him my story and how I knew it from both sides. I knew it from, um, you know, a middle class mom with a daughter that's an addict. But I also knew it as a child who, you know, used to hide in the bedroom because of all the chaos going on in, in the house, in the trailer. And um, and he was glad to have my help. After the first year, he asked me to go ahead and, and be the sponsor because I had, a, you know, just a little bit more of a of a personal story that, that might, that kind of helps people connect and understand what this program is because there's so much misinformation about it being a big government. Yeah, well, let's jump into that one before we get into Right to Work, because Right to Work is more retrospective, and this one is still ripe. Explain what prescription drug monitoring system would do and why you think it's a good idea. So a prescription drug monitoring system is a repository for your schedule two through four um, uh, prescriptions. And so in Missouri, in all other states, when a pharmacist fills a prescription, that information gets sent to your insurance company. If you're on um, Medicaid, it gets sent to your, you know, to the Medicaid provider. And, um, you know, if it's a Walgreens or a CVS, it goes into their national yes, database. And um, and then, then when you're a physician or if you go to multiple physicians or if you have a psychiatrist, if you have a doctor, a family doctor, those physicians can see what you're on. And so they can log in with their private um, number and see what their patient is on. So this is covered by HIPAA laws. Um, you, a physician is only allowed to look at their patient's records. That's covered. That's federal. And um, so very, very secure. Then that way that doctor can make that, that, that clinical decision that they've been trained to make as to whether, you know, if you're um, psychiatrist has you on a Xanax and maybe an Ambien, then is it a good idea to also put you on a narcotic um, for that back pain or that, you know, 
migraines? Or should we, um, you know, maybe try physical therapy or chiropractic care? Or maybe you've been on these medications and you've been seeing multiple doctors. And then your physician can look at that and say, look, you know, we have a problem here that we need to address. And so it's all about patient care. And right now in Missouri, our physicians, one, one explained it in committee. He said, it is like I'm shooting an arrow in the dark. He said, you know, because I could prescribe something that's going to counteract and be lethal to a patient um, if I don't know all the medications that they're on, if they don't remember to tell me or bring them. But then also when it comes to addiction, there are many warning signs on the front end that we're unable to see because we really don't have the information on our patient that we should have. So how many cities and counties have adopted this? Because because it hasn't been passed, some localities have actually decided to take matters into their own hands. So they have, and I'm, I could not be more proud of St. Louis um, City and County for start kicking this off. Right now we have, I can't tell you the number, but we have over half of Missouri's population in an area that has passed a local PDMP. But isn't that difficult to enforce when it's local and spotty like that? So what they're doing is they have contracted with APRIS, which is the same company that I was hoping that the state, and still am hoping that the state of Missouri will contract with. But APRIS has 44 other states that they take care of. And so St. Louis County, St. Louis City, Jackson County, Stoddard County passed it last week. St. Jen, Jefferson County, I believe, is doing it through the cities, not mm-hmm. not the countywide. Uh, Boone County, Jefferson City, uh, Cole County, Columbia. So all of these, as they add in, they go into the same database. So they're they're going into the same third-party vendor. So if you're in Jackson County and you're a physician, if your patient has been in St. Louis they will be able to see what medications you got. So it's not going to be perfect. Well, no PDMP is perfect. I mean, it's, but this, this isn't as good as a statewide program, and we are still pushing with everything we have to get a statewide program. But at least it's getting there. So the more counties that add in, the more these physicians can see if their patient has been somewhere else in the state. I wanted to talk about the the, the statewide bill because it's been stalled usually in the Senate for a long time. For years. And yes. the, the main antagonist has been Senator Rob Schaff, who is a Republican from St. Joseph and also a physician. But as time has gone on, he's not been the only person that's been against it. Like My, my theory was when Schaff termed out, this had a better chance of passing, but it's possible somebody's just going to replace him after 2018. And He's, he's, he's set, had a couple of arguments against it. One is that it's an invasion of privacy. And I wanted you to address the, that firsthand. Off. Right. So the PDMPs are not authorizing anyone to have this information that's not authorized now by law. So your physicians are authorized to have your information. Unfortunately, what they have to do in Missouri is they have to call the pharmacies. They have to call the other doctors if they think that their patient has been somewhere else. So it's a phone tree. Very, you know, archaic. So we're not authorizing anyone else to have it right now. The Department, uh, the Bureau of um, Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs in Missouri, they can call a pharmacy and say, I need this information. And the pharmacies have to turn it over. They have the authority now to get that. So we are not giving anyone in the government um, or elsewhere access to anyone's information. Um, 
so I think that that very much debunks the privacy issue. And then also, you know, we have 49 other states that have been operating these for many years, and there hasn't been a constitutional concern. There hasn't been, you know, a, a loud outcry of privacy. So the, these are, are very secure. They're very much in line with the Constitution and, and our laws, or they wouldn't be operating. Why do you think so many other states have been able to adopt it without much outcry. I mean, because whether one uh, agrees or disagrees with Senator Schaaf, he does have, I mean, a solid, I mean, his 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 concern, it's not just out there, you know, I mean, whether one agrees or disagrees with him. And it fascinates me that many, in, in so many of these other states, this hasn't been brought up. Do you know why? It has been brought up when they were passing their laws. So we have spoke with many of the program um, um the folks who operate the program mm -hmm. in these other states. And I've spoke with legislators in other states. And um, it was a problem. There, These concerns did come up when they were passing the laws. However, once they, they were able to explain, look, this is the same thing that we're doing. You know, it's electronic medical records. If it's a HIPAA violation, if you do something wrong, um, you know, they kind of worked through that and, and was able to get them passed in their state. So one of the things that he's, uh, Senator Schaaf has proposed in the past is putting this up for a statewide vote. Why would that be a, a, a bad outcome for this? Because if, if this is so good, it seems like it would be able to pass statewide. Right, absolutely. And, and so last year, and that's a great question. So last year, Senator Schaaf was, had started his filibuster and he was on the floor. And he you know, said, if Representative Rader would allow this to go to a vote of the people, I'll stop the filibuster right now. And so Senator Schatz, who was um, the Senate sponsor and is the Senate sponsor. Yeah. He's a Republican from Franklin County. Yes. And um, and so Senator Schatz went to him and said, went to his office and said, okay, this is the language that we would agree to, to go to a vote of the people. And Senator Schatz said, no, it had to be his language. Hmm. And so... At that point, we were the last two days of, of session when time on the calendar is yeah. the most important, and he wouldn't agree to the language. So it was not really an honest um, attempt at, okay, let's take this to a vote of the people. Well, okay, so what about this year? I mean, granted, you've got a year and a half, I mean, another session after this one, and but there's been a lot of stuff early on, including this. Do you see that there might be a pathway forward this session? Or are you guys going to hold off till next year? So we do have a path forward this session. We've been working um, with Senate leadership and since since last year, year and trying to get as, as many of the legislators educated on this issue as possible because, you know, even, even though I've been talking about this um, the whole time I've been there, you know, there are still some that, that really have questions and that still, um, last two weeks ago I spoke I presented before the conservative caucus, which I'm in, right. and I presented before the conservative caucus, and a couple of folks afterwards said, "Oh, I didn't realize that. I'm fine with it, you know." And so we've we've really worked hard on educating the members, and then um, one of the things that I've done incorrectly, rookie mistakes, um, year after year, is starting it in the House and really pushing it, and then trying to work once it got in the Senate, and. 
learning that the value of time with the Senate calendar, right. we started in the, the Senate, Senate this year. And so, and Senator Schatz is wonderful, and um, he really has a grasp of the issue, and he really cares a lot about it. And, and he's, you know, we've we've been trying to work with Senator Schaff, and, and he's come to the table, you know, a couple of times now, and, and I really appreciate that, with some things that he thought he could live with. Um, the the problem still remains is that my most important part is that the physicians can see this information so that you have medical professionals making those clinical decisions where he still has that that's where he has the heartburn and what he doesn't want to happen and so senator Schatz has gotten it it's it's on the calendar it can be brought up on the floor at any time and we're at spring break before you know we were just a few weeks out from closing once we got it over to the Senate, and that really didn't allow Senate leadership any time at all to be helpful. I want to talk about another bill that you've sponsored, and I'm, I'm reading it off of your, your webpage. It exempts health care entities registered with the Department of Health and Senior Services that distribute hyperdermic needles or syringes from the crime of unlawful delivery of drug paraphernalia. That's a lot of words, <laughs> but, it, but it basically, from, from talking with you before the show, would, I guess, protect certain healthcare entities from being charged with crimes if they deliver clean needles to people, essentially. Is right. That- so it's a syringe access um, program ability to ha- we, we have those programs in Missouri now. We have um, in, in St. Louis and in uh, Kansas City, we have syringe a- access programs working. However, they're having to work under the radar because they are illegal in Missouri. In Missouri, it's a paraphernalia charge, misdemeanor, if um, you do this. However, you know, studies have shown I'm very evidence-based, and um, and I know on the face value, it's like, oh, you're being an enabler to addicts. Well, that's that's not what the evidence shows. What the evidence shows is number one, if you're if you're fiscally conservative, certainly you can understand the the hit that Hep C is on our budget, and yeah, so. Yeah. Hepati- yeah, for our listeners, it's hepatitis C. Hepatitis C, yeah. Which and and the medications that are available have shot up in price, so it's extremely expensive to treat people who have hepatitis C. Right, and so if you're on Medicaid, um, you know that's that's a huge huge hit. It's about a, um, anywhere from seventy to a hundred thousand a patient, and so those pri- that price tag is a big piece of the budget, and um, syringe access programs have very much curtailed the spread of of Hep C and the spread of, of HIV. And so, just looking on the the dollar side, it's it's very important, but then also. On the the just human side, you want to help those who who have this or to keep from having it, to keep from spreading. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an addict. But then also on, on the other side of that is over 60 percent of it's the statistics prove that over 60 percent of people who use a syringe access program end up going into treatment. And so that's huge. And the reason is, is because you're, you're someone who, the people administering this program are educated, they have information for you on how to get clean, on where to get clean, on the, the, the avenues that are available to you for recovery, and you're meeting them where they're at. And so you're talking to them each time, you're giving them information each time. When they get ready to seek for help, 
you're that person that has that information that they're going to come to. And so that's why the, the numbers are so great when it comes to these syringe access programs to help get people into recovery. What sort of reception have you gotten to the bill? Well, I was I was so pleased in committee. All of the committee members were shaking their heads and, and very engaged. Many spoke to me afterwards. Um, Dot Frederick, who is the chairman of the committee, was not too crazy about it. At first, we, we had a lot of great testimony. Chad Sabora um, from St. Louis came and testified, and he brought um, several expert witnesses with him. We had um, great testimony. And, and Dot Frederick started looking into it, and he has warmed up to it quite a bit. However, um, it, it hasn't come out of the committee yet. He said that he would prefer to tie it to treatment, and I think that, um, that, that that's a mistake to, you know, to mandate a type of treatment if you're going to come. Because they won't come. No, they won't. Well, and, uh, this was going to be a broader question. It kind of goes to both of these issues. Do you think a lot of your Republican colleagues realize the depth of the drug addiction problem in places like you represent? I, I, I know that there are a lot of rural Republican legislators. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that there is an understanding that heroin abuse, methamphetamine abuse, prescription drug abuse are big problems in their district. But do you sometimes find that maybe they don't quite understand it because they don't see it every day for whatever reason? Right. I do think that there is a huge disconnect. And I think that that's where I'm very helpful because since I was raised in it, um, I can, um, I'm a little bit more of a mouthpiece to be able to explain, look, this is what it truly looks like. And, and addiction is, I mean, it's genetic, and it is a brain disease, and that has been proven medically. And so once you get your head around that, um, once you have someone like myself explaining, look, the face of addiction is mine, is my family. This is what it looks like. You know, it's not down some dark alley, sitting in a corner with a trash can knocked over you. That is not it. Yes, we have people that have, have gotten that far and need help, but we have the proliferation of narcotics has gotten so bad across the United States. Um, it's just an enormous problem, and I think it's going to take more people like me speaking out to help remove the stigma first before we can get to some sound policy. And um, and that's one of the things that I've, I've worked very hard on is just removing the stigma. I want to talk about right to work now. That's another issue that you you mentioned on the outset of the show has been yes. been major. You were the yeah. house handler of it, the bill. Yeah, exactly. So you were sort of the face of right to work on the house side. Absolutely. Yes. I want to know why do you feel like this is a policy that's so needed, and especially why do certain businesses like right to work so much? Because I've asked that to you before. I've asked that to other people before. I want to know like why is this such a policy that businesses like? You know, and I can I can speak for myself on this. And um, if as a business owner, I want to I want to pick and choose my workforce. I, I wouldn't want someone to you know to say, hey, in order to to work here, you have to be a part of the union. I want to evaluate and and interview on individual basis. I want to be able to pay someone based on what they're worth 
the merit of, of their hard work and their knowledge, um, not based on the group. And so as a business owner, I want to be able to, you know, my um, office manager is stellar. And every year I always want give her a glowing review and, and I give her a, a healthy bonus and and um, and then also pay increase. But you know what? I've, I've had some employees that I give a minimal increase to because maybe, you know, they, they don't show up or maybe when they're there, you know, I'm catching them on Facebook or watching a movie. And, you know, and, and that's just the difference between employees as a business owner. Um, but what are economic development folks in Sykeston and in um, nearby counties have told us is that we are not even looked at when it comes to these big plants. So I'm small potatoes, right, compared to some of these these other uh, businesses, but that we're not even looked at when it comes to coming to Missouri because we're not right to work. And that it's on, on that top five checkoff list as, you know, what's the tax policy of the state? How are, how are the you know the tr- the transportation and it, and down in the boot hill we have we have access to ports we have rail we have excellent highway access uh, we have low power rates but we didn't have right to work and no um, so, go so, ahead no. so so we saw business after business um, Paragold Arkansas which is just an hour and a half getting getting businesses that that very well could have been situated in the boot hill and since this um, law has passed i didn't think that it would matter that quickly i thought we would see you know maybe within a year we could look back and say okay we've got some movement coming in you know where's gotten out but since it's been signed which is only a couple of months we've already had um the new madrid industrial park has already gotten a couple of inquiries sykeson's industrial park has already gotten an inquiry and so our economic development guys have told us look this is already working now you know i mean you've heard that the other side m- multiple Absolutely. times but just just for the sake of our listeners have both sides here is that you know they've contended that a okay this may attract businesses but it drives it drives down wages b i mean they've said well there's nothing that prevents an employer like yourself from deciding who's in or who's out it depends on what sort of agreement i mean if if your workforce decides to uh form a unit a, a union unit you still can you know decide you don't like you know that this person's not up to speed or they're not doing their job and see that some of the major employers like boeing and some of the really large companies that they actually prefer having union contracts because then they're just dealing with one group of let's say four or five officials instead of ten thousand individual workers and that their objection to the fact is that right to work bars any sort of um, <clears throat> of uh, you know broad contract like that, um, as opposed to maybe just in- discouraging it or whatever. So, but the fact that they're barred. So, I mean, how do you deal with that? And especially because in some cases, it doesn't affect current contracts, but it will affect you know like like renewals down the road. Just sort of. Um, your take on that so and as i said before i'm very evidence-based and so i really looked into this in other states and what i found because the arguments are very compelling 
you know. Yeah, on, and I've on, looked at studies. Just right. so people know, I've seen studies. The overall studies have been that the, that the pay is down some. Depends on what state you're looking at, but go ahead. So and and so looking at these other states like Oklahoma and Indiana, they have increased in jobs and union jobs, and so bringing in more work increased both sets of employees, which I think is phenomenal. When you have a state like Missouri that we've lost a congressional seat, so we're shrinking. And what we need to, what our major need was is to bring in jobs. And so, yes, it brings in um, entry level jobs as well. And so when you have an influx of, say, um, 5,000 entry level jobs, that is going to bring the average pay across the state down. But when I ask for union members to bring to me any state that if you were a, an iron worker in Missouri, but yet an iron worker in Arkansas, when they passed the Arkansas law, started making less money, show me, show, did they dock anyone's pay? And the answer was no, that their pay didn't go down, but incoming people were making less yes. from it being an entry-level job. And so that was the only, when it comes to making less, so actually there's more pay, there's more increase in pay because you have more jobs, but... Um, but the entry, but there are more entry levels, and those just pay less because it's entry level, which is the same as you know if you go to work at McDonald's in Missouri. While we're union, you're going to make X to get started, but five years from now you're going to make XX, and um, so that was one of the things that was very compelling in the argument to me was that more jobs lifts all boats, and so which translates into tax dollars for this state, you know. Um, but with Right to Work, Boeing, and other companies, so they can still have unions. So this just gives the employer, the employee, the ability to have it or to not. And so this doesn't, if, if Boeing wants to continue to re-up their contracts every year or five years, however often they, they do that, they are they are absolutely free to do that and to keep um, all of, of the requirements that they had in there before. Now, one of the arguments for right to work, which by the way, I want to just define what right to work is, as we always do. It is a law that bars unions and employers from requiring workers to pay dues as a condition of employment. Right to work is used as shorthand. I want to make sure listeners who don't understand know what it actually is. Right, right. And federal law already uh, bars everybody from requiring everybody to be in a union. It's just that if you're in, if this is before right to work. If you were in a bargaining unit, even if you decided you didn't want to be a member, you still had to pay dues. It wouldn't, uh, you could have them subtract the amount that you thought went for political stuff. But I mean, I used, I mean, full disclosure, I used to be a union steward at the Post Dispatch 20 years ago. So I know how some of this works. So, anyways, I talked with several members of labor unions. Um, these were not union leaders. The, the people who I'm about to play now, Nancy Love is an electrician from Independence, Chris Steinkuller is a machinist from St. Louis, and Wes Epperson is a retired Teamster. They were all very concerned about the impact of this, and it's brought up as an idea of employee choice, but this is what members and ex-members of a union feel about right to work. We actually have a list 
at our union hall of people that have not paid their dues, even now, before right to work even passed. So there are people that don't even like paying their dues already, and I think having right to work pass, if it does go through, will make it to where they just will stop paying dues, but they'll continue to enjoy the benefits of the union that bargains for them, and I just don't think that's right. It's going to... Uh eventually take money away from the unions, which is going to make it harder for them to represent their uh, uh, their members. When a guy benefits from what the union's done, the contracts they've negotiated, including wages, vacation, uh, days off, funeral leave, all these type of things that people enjoy, then I don't think it's too much to ask for those people to pay union dues. So you've heard these arguments before, but from talking with people in unions, they're very worried about the effects of their livelihood now that right to work has passed. Now, I want you to kind of address those or address those concerns, because we can talk at a 30,000 foot view. We can talk to union leaders. But when you're talking to people who are actually on the ground and they're worried, I think as a person who advocates for this, you should address some of their concerns. Yes. And I appreciate the opportunity to do that. So. That is one of the things that I've been telling union members is to go look at um, these numbers online. Look, you know, go to um, our Department of Labor and look at these numbers online, the actual numbers at how these states increased in jobs and because that gives more opportunity and how these unions have increased. Because to me, that shows that, no, the union didn't get weaker. The union didn't go away. But then also look at the MSTA, who I would hands down say is the strongest union in Missouri. The Missouri State Teachers Association? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. And um, they really are. And they are, they've had right to work. They've always had right to work um, because they're a, a public yeah. union. Yeah, public employee. And yeah. they're very strong. But they, they, provide a service to their members and so their members want to pay for that service and so if anything what I think the numbers the evidence actually shows is that the unions in these other states the MSTA the NEA they have to provide a strong service for their members so that they'll want to pay so they have to to give something that's worth paying for and people want to be in the union. Right. Now, I mean, the experience has been different in different states. I mean, uh, an example of a right-to-work state where the unions are very powerful is Nevada, where the Culinary Workers Union um, has is among several that are extremely powerful that deal with the casinos. And part of it's because they provide this very detailed training for even housekeepers. Um, and uh, and the for our listeners, if you're interested in that, the New York Times did a fabulous story uh, last fall that really looked at what was going on in Nevada with the unions and actually had great pictures of the type of training they did. I one of my first jobs was that as a housekeeper in a you know hotel. Mine was too. So, so, mine was too. Wow. So, but I, but I <laughs> notice notice that neither of us are doing it now. That's right. But I think that's, that's going right. to be key going forward because I know that there's going to be an effort to try to undo this at the ballot box, which is kind of in flux right now. But I think that if right to work remains law of the land, the ability for unions to remain strong is to show to their members that they still matter. They still provide a service that's worth paying dues for. If they can do that, they're going to be as strong as they ever were. 
But there's also some other variables that if they if you all pass other things that weaken unions hypothetically, that that could be another variable hypothetically. What do you kind of think about that? You know, right now there is uh, Representative Steve Helms has a bill that is, you know, one of the arguments that we've heard from the union side is the free rider concern. Right. And um, and so federally, the, the Supreme Court has ruled that all the unions have to do is not put that in their contract initially. So say they're, they're a contract with Boeing, they just don't put in there, th- you know, that they're going to represent everyone. But the bill that, that Representative Helms is carrying makes that much more clear and says that the unions don't have to pay, don't have to represent someone who's not a paying Member. Well, does that mean that that person doesn't get the same pay that the union members get paid? That person would have to negotiate their pay with the company on their own. Hmm. Okay. Now, that could, that could be interesting to watch. Now, there's also a bill dubbed Paycheck Protection, which would affect empl- public employees, which because many of the public employees, although they don't have mandatory membership, we're, we're including police, fire, uh, teachers, uh, do have uh, payroll deduction on their on the dues from the and this would, in effect, bar that. What sort of, I mean, what's, Right now, it doesn't bar the, um, the automatic um, withdrawal. So it doesn't, but what but it does is sign an it's an annual re-up. So instead of, instead of opting for it once and then being in it until you get out, it's just an annual, like when you're filling out your, your insurance papers every which we do every year then you also sign saying yes I still want to be in the union and I carried that bill for several years this year uh, Representative Taylor carried Mm -hmm. it since I was carrying right to work but what sparked me to want to be the carrier of that when the carrier turned out was um, so I had a a local girl that she was actually worked with me for a while but she works at the social services office in Sykeston and she brought to me a quarterly magazine from, um, and I can't think of the name of, of the union for the social services. Mm-hmm. But um, anyways, it was the election model. It was right. the one right before the election. And all through it, it had every, every member in there that they were recommending that you vote for were Democrats and several of them were pro-choice and she just had a fit because she's not and she said so I went to the um, union steward there Mm -hmm. on site or not on site but whoever handles it and I told them that I didn't appreciate my dues being put to this and that I didn't want to be in it anymore and they said well you have to send a letter so she sent a letter and then she's like well the dues you know weeks later the dues are still coming out and said, well, just fax it, you know, just make a copy of what you sent, fax it to this number. She did, so the dues still continued coming out. And she had to go back a third time and get mad again. And so this bars that from happening, any problems, any miscommunication, any having to explain why you don't want to be in there three times before you can get out. all this says is it's just an annual written authorization. And so it can be, and we even put in there that it can be electronic. So it can be via email. You just check a box or, or you shoot an email saying, yes, I want this to continue. So those deductions can still be manually or automatically withheld. Um, not going to change that at all. But then there is just an annual re-up. Okay, so changing really quick because we're running uh, 
uh, and this is our fault, my fault, because uh, I think you've been extremely fascinating, is looking ahead uh, when this airs a few days from now, uh, the legislators will, will be back in Jeff City. What will be the top issues that are going to be handled right away? So PDMP is on deck. And um, I look forward to hearing that um, my bill being heard on the House floor, as well as Senator Schott's bill being heard on the Senate floor. And um, and then prevailing wage is also on deck. And so I think that, that those are two, two bills that we're going to hear. We did charter schools um, before we left yesterday. And so that was finalized in the House. And, um, and then we haven't gotten a lot of Senate bills over yet but i know that there are some that are on their way how's the budget process going i mean there had been talk early on and having it out early is that sort of not that I mean, did not happen yeah i was <laughs> guessing that i was guessing that it's it's going i know they were working on markups this week and um and we could very well be voting on it when we when we get back i didn't check yesterday to see if if all had gotten you know to where it needed to be but um, that's, you know, definitely something that we're going to be taking up right away. So you have at least one more term you could? I do. I have one more term in the House. Okay. And are you looking ahead at all? Well, uh, my Senate seat is up at the same time that my House seat is up. And so I, that is definitely on the table. In 2020, by the way. In 20, yeah. Right, in 2020. And, um, and Who's then, the senator now? Wayne, sen- Wayne Wallingford. Okay. Sorry to yep. No, <laughs> no, I appreciate the help. So Wayne Wallingford is. And yeah, he Mr. Will, Encyclopedia. He will be out. He really is. Is. Um, <laughs> he'll be up in 2020 and um, and then also I'm thinking about running for speaker so I'm also considering that for... whoa okay <laughs> listeners listen up okay go ahead so that would be um, so what we do is we elect the speaker in the off session in the off term in the off term so this year for speaker that will follow Todd Richardson right. will be elected at veto session this year is what we typically do, yes. And this is an interesting situation. This is the first time this has happened since like 2007, 2008, where the House Majority Leader is not going to be kind of first in line to be Speaker because Mike Sirpoy is term limited. So it's kind of a wide open contest and it's a possibility that somebody who is not necessarily in House leadership may become Speaker. Is that fair to say? I I agree, yes, absolutely fair. And, you know, policy has been, I'm very policy-driven, as you guys can tell. I mean, policy has been very important to me. I believe in giving 110%. I put my head down and I work hard. And um, I think that when you have a, a, a huge majority in the Senate and a huge majority in the House and you have a Republican governor when you have all three together you need someone who is who is very policy driven and for multiple reasons one because we don't we don't need to make mistakes we don't need to get sloppy but then also number two you know just because we have we have all three Um, but then number two I think it's very important I'm a business owner and I think it's very important to have business owners helping make some of these decisions that are are putting forward a new business climate in our state, which I think is is extremely important and is going to be very valuable as we are trying to increase industry and increase wages. Um, so I, th- I think that I have a, a great opportunity, um, so I'm very seriously considering that and, um, and hope to make my decision by the end of session. I don't want to jump forward and, and 
start this heated race now when when we have so many very important policy uh, items that are on the table. I want to still, you know, just keep really plugging away at trying to get some of these very good things done for Missouri. So is the summer going to probably be pretty active for some legislators who are looking at various leadership positions? It will be, just for speakers. So next year is when we'll elect the others. But um, the speaker is done in, in the off year. We'll be following that uh, shadow race, so to speak. It's not a public <laughs> race. But we want to just thank you for coming on. This was a great discussion. Fabulous. Oh, this thank was a you fabulous so much for having me. I'm, I loved this, it. Yeah. yeah, this is one of the, I, I would say, one of the better legislative shows you've had. So, oh, so, thank you. So congratulations on getting that praise from my co-host oh, right now. Oh, my goodness. Thank uh, you. For all of our stories, <laughs> stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at jmanis. It's jm. M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how can people find out more about you on Twitter, social media, otherwise? Yeah, so my Twitter account is H-R-E-H-D-E-R. So my first initial and last name, H-Rader. And then also my website is hollyrader.com. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. (laughs) 